Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against you, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. And above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. I want to speak to you tonight about love that binds us together. It is love. Love binds us together. So uh, I know this is a pagan holiday, but happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> Maybe pagan, but if you're not very wise, you know, you may want to think about that. Unfortunately, our world has hijacked love and made lust and sexual pleasure the picture of love in our society. And that is a shame because we know love, true love, is so much more than that. And that may be an expression of true marital love, but it is certainly not the heart of God or the heart of love. And I want to just say here, it's not accidentally, it's in my notes, that we have many people in our church who are not married, who are not in a romantic relationship. However, you understand love. Because love and romance are not the exact same thing. And you love God and you demonstrate the love of God in a meaningful way. And very much like our Lord Jesus Christ, you lead a fulfilling life. You may or may not desire a life partner, but it has not kept you from loving God, from making a difference, from going on. We have people who have been through divorce, who have been widowed, and uh, I thank God that you are hanging in there, you are loving God and being a testimony in this world of moral purity, which we'll talk about in March, in a really debased culture. When I was a teenager, there was a song that went something like this, uh, any kind of love is better than no love. Even a bad love is better than no love. Any kind of love is better than no love at all. I just want to tell you that that's not true. There's too many people that are getting out of love because it's not true. And uh, make sure that you don't fall in love, that you grow in love, and that your love is rooted in respect and relationship. First, people that get the cart ahead of the horse get often married for the wrong reasons instead of a right relationship and God being in the center. But that's not my subject tonight. Um, there are too many unhappy married couples, unhappy cohabiting couples that are splitting up. And all that testifies that, that love has to be deeper than a physical relationship. I want to walk you through Colossians chapter 3 tonight uh, to get to that verse that I read as my text about love binding us together. This is, a, this is an incredible passage. There are parallel passages in Ephesians and Philippians. But I want to just walk through this and... So it's going to take me a few minutes to get there, not maybe as long as some nights, but I want you to see this. If you, Colossians 3 and 1, if you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God in a position of power. No one believes that Jesus is physically there, 
is in the position of the mighty power of God. Anytime the Bible uses the expression, the right arm of God, you know, being a left-handed person, this always bothers me, but the right hand of God is symbolic of His power. Amen? And Jesus is in the power of God. So I want you, he said, if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above. Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So he tells us not just to look toward heaven, but that our entire life should be aimed toward heaven and toward things that have a heavenly value to them. We are to seek and to set. In 2002, January 1st, 2002, I preached a message called Calibrate. It's the story of my GPS going haywire in the woods. That may remind you of that. You can go back. I think it's archived. But I use this passage and I talked about seeking and setting, how it becomes really the calibration of our soul. Then he tells us in verses 3 and 4, For you died. Everybody say you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Now, Paul wants you to know that when you came to Jesus Christ, the only way He came into you is for you to first die to your sins and to yourself. You are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Your entire all life is dead and gone. And when we come to the Lord by repenting of our sins, being baptized in Jesus' name and being filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, there should be a dramatic break from our old life. Amen? And that's what he's telling us. If you've been risen with Christ, seek those things that are above. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. You're dead. Your life is here with Christ and God. You are to seek heavenly things. Paul lets us know that you are either dead in sin or you are dead to sin. You can't have it both ways. And I know and the Bible speaks of mortifying or putting to death the deeds of the flesh. We know it's not a one-time thing the day you first came to God, but it's a daily thing, right? Of putting off the old nature, putting on the, old, the new nature, dying to sin and self and the habits that used to have us bound and some things that just hang on in us that we need to put away. Amen. Sister Janine Savage, I just saw you. I didn't realize you were here. God bless you. Sister Austin's mom, and we have been praying with you through this whole passing of your husband. Parentheses on purpose. This is a great godly lady right here. Amen. And then... And then, I want to just explain to you that Paul's painting this picture and he's going to kind of tell us that our old life is like somebody that is wearing some really old, grimy, grungy, dirty, that's all the same thing, right? Filthy, raggedy garments. That's what we were like before we came to God. And we are to live in a process of taking off all of those things. And it is a process. It is not a one-time event. We're to put all of that off, and then we are to take new godly habits and godly mindset. There, there's a phrase I like. It's called your worldview. It's the lens through which you see the world. We have a biblical worldview. So we see the world through the eyes of the Bible, 
And our reality is a biblical reality. Whatever the Bible says, we believe and we do our best to live by it. And anything that contradicts the Bible doesn't match up to the Word of God. We cast it away. It doesn't fit our world view. He said, I want you to put off and put on. There are some new garments that you need to put on into your life. And then he gives us two lists of five different sins. Uh, the first in verse 5. And, and then again, and then he gives us a list of five virtues to put on. So ten things to put off, five virtues to put on. And I want to just share with you tonight that it's something I don't do uh, real commonly, that I'm going to display these verses in the New Living Translation. So this gave me an occasion to kind of say this. Uh, I personally usually read the King James Version. I grew up on that. I think in that. And if I'm going to locate a scripture when God speaks to me, that's the translation I'm most familiar with. Tonight I use the New King James Version. It flows a little easier. There are some archaic words in the King James Version that we don't relate to. And when you get in a passage like we're in tonight, some of those words don't really connect with us. And if I'm going to use a paraphrase... Uh, excuse me, not a paraphrase, but a more modern translation that reads different. It is a thought-for-thought translation. I usually use the New Living Translation. Uh, I'm not a heretic. I'm very strict on the authority of Scripture, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is literally God-breathed. And we believe that when God gave the Scripture, that they wrote the original language that the Bible was written in is inspired by God. They're friends of mine that have very strong feelings about the King James Version. In the Georgia District, we prefer our speakers to use the King James Version. It is most common and no one is upset or offended. But if you happen to be a Spanish-speaking person and you had to have a King James Version Bible to go to heaven, you would be in a lot of trouble because there is no King James Version, English Version of the Spanish Bible. It's the Reina Valera, I think, right? And around the world, they don't use the King James Version. It doesn't exist for them. So if you want to kind of think about that and process that. But I think it's good not to be all over the map. There are a lot of paraphrases. Uh, the message paraphrase got real popular. But it was basically written by one man, not a group of scholars, not really a good uh, study of the original text. So I shy away from that, maybe except for a little devotional reading. But here we are, Colossians 3 and 5. Everybody still have the Holy Ghost? <laughs> verse 5. This is a good devotional version. Not a, trans, not, a, not a paraphrase. It's a translation. So put to death the sinful, earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy... For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Now the Apostle Paul writes letters to various churches and he uses these themes, Colossians 3, Galatians 5, Ephesians 4. He has similar lists of things that he addresses in those epistles. And these vices that he talks about in verse 5 are heavily weighted towards sexual sins. In the month of March, we're going to spend basically the month, not the entire month, talking about moral purity because we need that in our world. But this is on the way to 
where I want to go tonight, so we'll just talk about this. That these sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires are part of our old nature. They're not supposed to be part of our new nature. And sexual out relationships outside of marriage are sinful and sexual immorality runs the gamut of all kinds of forbidden sexual acts. Paul warns against it often in his letters. Jesus spoke of it. And in our culture, we need to be careful that we're not affected by our world. And in that early biblical culture, there were so many pagan people coming to God that Paul had to write about this a lot. I mean, he was dealing with churches where people continued living immoral lives even after they had come to the Lord. You know, so they had a lot of cleaning up to do, and that's why we have these passages of Scripture. One of the things is that sexual desire is hardwired into our human nature, and according to the bonds of marriage, the Bible said that the marriage bed is undefiled, but that God will judge people who are sexually immoral. That's the culture we live in. And it's interesting that this list is capped off with greed, and he said that greed is idolatry. Greed takes the things that you want more than God and it becomes an idol in your life and you will do whatever it takes to get what you want even though it means pushing God down in your life and raising up your own desires. It refers to haughty and ruthless uh, passions that move in a person. That they're willing to do anything it takes. Stepping on the backs of other people, being dishonest to get what they want. It turns your desires into idols. It's an arrogant desire for more and more and more, even if it means getting what you want on the backs of other people. And it stands opposed to the generosity that is part of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what it means to really be a person who is filled with love, that you love other people and you're willing to give of yourself to them. Greed can be greed for people, not just things in the context of this. And I want to just say this, that we, we are the people of God. And sometimes when they do values tests and uh, surveys, they find that people who call themselves Christians really don't live a whole lot differently than the people that do not call themselves Christians. That they lie with the same frequency, <clears throat> they commit sexual immorality with the same frequency. Uh, that is not a testimony that you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. Amen? Amen? The Bible said we're to put it away. Verse 6. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. The Lord says, God's going to judge these people. And Paul writes in verse 7, You used to do these things when your life was still a part of the world. It's kind of an ouch statement for them, right? You're getting Paul's letter and it's being read to you. And Paul said, this is what you used to be before you came to God. Now you're not supposed to live like that anymore. Remember, you're dead to sin. And then, uh, verse 8. Now he's going to give us some old sinful habits that we're to put off. The New Living Translation doesn't use the phrase put off. New King James, King James does. Uh, New Living Translation says get rid of. Look at verse 8. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and filthy or dirty language. 
He said, you've got to put some things off out of your life. So let's just walk through these words. He said, you need to deal with anger. And here, the, kind of the idea of this word in the original is more than you just got upset because somebody cut you off in traffic, right? This is sort of a stewing anger that you carry around with you and may be manifested to who knows who. And sometimes, most often, with people you feel safe with. You think they're going to love you even though you vent pent-up anger. This is not so much this first word, outburst of rage, because that's going to be the next word, right? We're going to have wrath or rage. Rage is what you think it is. It's anger boiling over, breaking out in angry words or deeds. The Bible says that you need to deal with your anger issues. And if they're showing up in rage then that's probably a big flashing sign that you've got issues. Now the Bible, Paul writes to Timothy and he says that I I would that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. In that culture, evidently, he goes on to say that women need to be modest. You know, we need uh, praying men and modest women. There's the two big problems that he's having to deal with. But anyway... Now I need these men to deal with their anger issues. They've got wrath issues. They've got doubt issues. And Paul says you need to put this off out of your life. He says malice or malicious behavior. Now all of these are like kindred sins, aren't they? They all kind of run together in people's lives. You need to put malice, this an evil force that wrecks relationships. And then he says slander. Now the King James says blasphemy. So slander in this, you could say that this was a slander against God or a slander against other people. So I want you to see kind of the progression. A stewing anger demonstrated in in rage that leads to slandering other people, killing them with your words and actions. He said this slander that is injuring your brothers and sisters needs to be put off out of your life. You need to rip that old dirty, filthy garment off of your life and you need to put it to death. Remember, you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now, you know, I was reading various commentaries about this and one thing I read that I thought was really interesting that the subtle subtle expressions of anger may ooze out in malice that we bear toward others And then sometimes it leads to spiteful pot shots that we take at other people to defame them and their reputations. You know, the Bible says that it's not what you put in, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. For out out of the inside of you, James talks about this too. It's, It's what's in us that we don't deal with that comes out of us. Sometimes in moments we were hoping it would not have come out like it did. But that's a good thing, you know. It's kind of like wondering what's in the toothpaste tube. Squeeze it with a little pressure and you will soon find out. And a little pressure sometimes reveals the parts of us. I mean, all of us, you know, can have better days and worse days. And I would hope that I wouldn't be judged on my worst day. But, you know, what comes out when you put a little pressure on says a whole lot about some of the stuff in us 
that we need to address and we need to put off out of our life. And then he says dirty language, filthy communication is the Greek word like the King James would say. It's the only time this particular phrase is used in the New Testament. And it may be saying ungodly words, curse words. It may be speaking of dirty jokes, filthy talking. It probably has a broad application of foul-mouthed abuse, shameful speaking. He said you need to get all of this filthy, foul language off your lips. And everybody said amen. This abusive language that hurts other people, including your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And uh, maybe you think it's true, but it may not be helpful. Filthy communication out of your mouth. I want to just pause here just a little bit to let this soak in some. Because if you're given to unclean jokes, if you're given to slandering people, if you're given to sniping and cutting other people down, there are some things that you need to put off out of your life. You say, well, I didn't mean to. Well, it came from somewhere, and that's where I believe a combination of prayer and the Word of God can wash that out of you. It may not be instantaneous. I don't want you to think that if you don't, you know, reform or transform by tomorrow at noon, the Lord's going to strike you dead. But it would really be disappointing, I think, to the Lord who knew you were sitting here or watching online and tomorrow you weren't even working on something that you knew when you saw yourself in the mirror of the Word. You knew you needed to work on it. So where does this stuff come from? It comes from inside of you. You know, I learned a long time ago, this is Valentine's Day, right? So this is good. Uh, you don't need to say... My, my wife made me mad. No, you got mad. You have to own your emotions and your reactions. My husband made me say that. No, you got angry because of what he or she said. And it's not going to do you any good to blame them. Even if they did like the fuse or throw a match on the gasoline, you had to have something combustible in you. They offended me. They hurt my feelings. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Now what does that mean? You have great peace because you know the law of God, that God takes care of you. Now, I don't want you to feel like, because I'm a real live person, and I'm talking to real live people, that you know God is standing there with a giant hammer over you, I'm talking about we need to yield ourselves to the work of the Spirit and the Word of God in our lives. And we don't need to give ourselves an excuse for not being Christian. Not one time. And it's a law at Atlanta West, it's one of our house rules, that if you mess up, fess up and make it right. We don't believe in faking it till you make it. We don't believe in being so proud that you cannot say, I'm sorry. Because it's driven by pride or maybe insecurity that you don't feel like you can afford to admit that you're wrong, that it's going to bankrupt you emotionally. Well, there's another problem to deal with. If you have a wounded spirit, 
If you've not been made complete in Christ, you can go back and listen to that sermon too. X equals God from the beginning of the year or whenever I preached about that. It's in the archives. F.F. Bruce is one of my favorite commentators. This is a little summary of this verse. He tells him to put off those old habits just like he would discard an outworn suit of clothes which no longer fits you. And he said this repulsive collection of habits like anger, quick temper, malice, the language that accompanies those things, slander and foul talk. He said we've got to get rid of them. Do not let your mouths be polluted by them. Don't let that filthy language be part of your life. And everybody that agrees that the Bible is a pretty good book, say amen. amen. There's some deeds we've got to deal with that have to do with, with the lust of the flesh. And then there are some attitudinal issues we have to deal with that show up in these words that talk about you know, anger and wrath, slander, malice, filthy communication. And then he kind of throws another verse in for free. Not really, there's nothing extra. Verse 9, verse 9. Don't lie to each other. For you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Lying is such a big deal, he gives it its own verse. Isn't that great? It's a white lie, you know. So what is a, what is a lie? It is an abomination unto God and it is an ever-present help in time of trouble. Wait, no. That's what one little boy said. Some of you are just like, it went right by you. He said, it is an abomination unto God, and it is an ever-present help in time of trouble. That's what a lie is. <laughs> Don't lie to each other. Now, there's a pretty powerful verse in Revelation, not in my notes. He gives this long list of these really bad people that are going to the lake of fire. And it's, it's like this, and all liars. People who habitually lie shall have their part in the lake of fire that burneth with fire and brimstone. So it wouldn't be nice if we moved on to the positive. Great idea, verse 10. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. You're renewed after the knowledge of Him that created you. Now, I like this because early on He tells us that you've got to put off your old sinful nature. Because you cannot just say, I'm going to quit lying, I'm going to quit being angry, I'm going to quit doing this and this and this. That doesn't work that way. You have to have a power working in you to give you power over your base sinful carnal nature. So Paul doesn't just say, oh, let me give you these rules about how to live. He said, you need to put this old nature off in dying to it. You need to have the power of the Spirit at work in you. And that's what he says in verse 10. You've got to be clothed in this new nature. You've taken off these old filthy, nasty habits of sin and you've put on the nature of Jesus Christ. You've clothed yourself with it. It is the covering to be renewed. And another place says to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Verse 11. In this new life, 
It doesn't matter. Now, let me just pause right here. I preached about this a couple weeks ago when I talked about born in the house my father built, about who we are in Jesus Christ. But I want you to see that in this passage, there, there is some teaching about radical respect. That we respect other people by not defiling them sexually. That we don't treat people like dirt. They're, the, they're created in the image of God. So why don't we treat them that way with the sins of the flesh? Neither do we treat people like that with the sins of the spirit, with attitudes and our vile language. We do not kill people with our words. Okay? Gunpower words. He said, now let me tell you about the church. He said, I'm not, I'm not just talking about those people who are your really close buddies. He said, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, and in the King James, that's the word I preached about on that Sunday, about Scythian, slave or free. He said Christ is all that matters and He lives in all of us. No matter who your brother or sister is or what background they came from, what their culture or class or color, socioeconomic standing, I guess that's class. No matter who they are, they're your brother and sister. And everything I've just told you about applies to everybody who's in the church because we're all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. I found some more things about Scythians that I thought was pretty... Can I give, I'll just tell you this for free, okay? They're, the, they're the, like the lowest of the low. And Scythian slaves did police duty in Athens. And Scythian policemen are figures of fun in attic comedy because of their uncouth ways and speech. So these Scythians were like, everybody made fun of them. You know, isn't it amazing in our culture how people tell racial jokes and ethnic jokes and always finding somebody to, to pick on? I guess our farmers in the house could tell us more about the pecking order that I guess there is. One poor hen who gets pecked to death by all the other hens in the hen house. Just somebody, some poor little lady there in the hen house that everybody wants to pick on. And it seems like a lot of people have a whipping boy or they've got somebody in youth groups. We deal with this with peer pressure and young people find they can be so cruel toward other people. But we're growing out of that, aren't we? Amen. So sometimes, I was thinking about these Scythians, you know, I'm obsessed, I'm obsessed with Scythians. Because people come to the church, they, don't, they, may, they may not know basic uh, hygiene, they may not know manners, they may not know what a cuss word even is and why it's bad. And, and they've been like this their entire life. And when a person like that comes to God... They may be repulsive to us socially. They may be a million miles away from being a polished personality. But Paul says in the unction of the Holy Spirit as he writes this, that these people are part of the family of God. And then he talks about slaves. That Greeks and Romans alike, you know, they, a slave was a piece of property. Aristotle could define a slave as a living tool. 
He said, you know, a tool like a shovel is an inanimate object. That's a tool. Well, a slave is a living object. It's just like a shovel in my, in my tool shed. That's how people were viewed in that day. But in the kingdom of God, slaves were being saved. And Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, his slave master, and says, I want you to take him back, not as his owner, but as a brother. That was part of their culture, but not in the church. Amen? We need to be Christians above everything else. I always jokingly say when we go to the bread banquet at the olive tree, that Mike Katsalas, the owner, is my Greek brother. I only have about that much Greek, I think, in me, but I like it, you know, so that's my Greek brother. But, you know, there are people who are really proud of their cultural heritage. And that's not a bad thing to a point. But Paul said, when you get in Jesus Christ, whether you think you're really somebody or you know you're a nobody, it doesn't really matter. You're really enjoying that part right now, aren't you? That you're a Christian first. Before you're an American, you're a Christian first. You're a follower of Jesus first. I know I'm going really slow right now. Your pedigree, race, color, or creed has to be subordinated to your identity as the creation of Jesus Christ, a new creation. That's the only way we can say that we have common ground, is that we're of the same spirit. Now I know the Bible said that God made of all uh, one blood all nations for to dwell upon the face of the earth. So if you trace us back to Adam and Eve, we're all brothers and sisters, all the way back to Adam. But what causes prejudice, what causes strife, is when we vie for either our way, and we try to think that we're better, or we feel insecure because we feel we're less, and we fight back against that. Paul said, in the church, we're all one. We're all the same. Amen. I read a couple of things that I thought was interesting, that in times of persecution, Christian persecution, that slaves show that they could face the trial and suffer just as courageously as anyone else. I read a couple of fascinating stories. A slave girl named Blandina and her mistress both suffered persecution that broke out in the churches of the Rhone Valley in AD 177. But it was a slave girl who was the hero of the persecution, impressing friend and foe alike as a noble athlete in the contest of martyrdom. Here she was, a nobody in her culture. But she had Jesus Christ inside of her. She was willing to fight and die a martyr's death. That's because you belong to Jesus Christ first. So don't ever slice and dice the culture of the church. Amen? We are one. Now, the Bible is a brilliant book. And, you know, sometimes you think, now why is that verse there? He's getting on to us about sins of the flesh, sins of attitude, and the, you know, that come out of our mouth. And then he throws this verse in here about Gentiles and Jews and get over yourself and who you are to make sure you're one. Because all of these things drive attitudes in the cultures of this world. But it should not be that way in the church. Amen? Verse 12. Mercifully, we're going to verse 12. 
since God chose you to be the holy people He loves, you must, must clothe yourselves. Now He's going to give us five things, okay? So remember, we're putting off this continual process. Now we're going to put some things on. Tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And again, the image is of kind of putting on clothing layer by layer. Like it was really cold outside, and you're going to layer up to kind of brace for the cold. You're going to layer up, and you're going to start, and I don't know that this is a particular priority, with tenderhearted mercy or compassion on other people. Now, Paul is saying, I've already told you about putting off these vices, I want to tell you about putting on these virtues. Tender-hearted mercy. That is compassion for other people. Last night in our ministerial advance, I just did a drive-by, talked about Jesus. You know, the disciples were trying to get away. Jesus said, let's get a, come apart and rest. And they get there and there's a bunch of people waiting on them and more needs. But the Bible said that Jesus was moved with compassion. That when you are thinking about that other person, putting yourself in their shoes, and feeling what they may be going through at this moment, it gets you out of yourself and into where they're living, and you can feel compassion even when you may be fatigued, even when you may have a lot of other things that would keep you from showing or demonstrating the love of Jesus Christ. Compassion. The second word is kindness. A gracious Sensitivity toward other people is triggered by a genuine care for their feelings and desires. Now, there's an interesting book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Sounds like a bad book, but it's a good book. But in relationships, some people are always trying to be interesting. And then there are smart people who are being interested. And you will always build closer relationships by being interested than interesting. So, kindness is thinking of that other person in the way you treat them, of course. The next word is humility. Humility. Now, I love this little definition of humility. It's not unique to me or original. But humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. There's false humility, voluntary humility. Oh, poor me, you know. This is my personal deal, you know. There are a lot of times I go to speak, minister, and I may be uncomfortable, nervous, or whatever, but it's not about me, so why would I want to get up there and talk about that? Because that's about me. And humility is keeping our ego in check. And I want to show you a few verses from Philippians chapter 2 that kind of demonstrate the humility of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, New King James Version. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition. That's a pretty good start, isn't it? Anybody remember in the upper room, the night that Jesus would be betrayed, and the disciples are arguing over who is the greatest? I mean, it's like the day of the final exam, and they're fighting on who is the greatest. Mind-boggling. Human ego is mind-boggling. 
And if you don't think you don't have ego or vanity, you are greatly deceived because we all do. So, nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Wow. That Scythian, are you serious? That slave is better than me? It's a different passage, but it's there in Philippians as well. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, verse 4, but also for the interests of others. This is not the same as sticking your nose in other people's business. This is caring about other people and what they're going through in their life. We're, we're all a little selfish, right? I'm looking at their... <laughs> don't... I know there's no thunderstorms nearby, but don't fake it right now. <laughs> we're all a little selfish. Oh, I know why, what I messed up. We're all a whole lot selfish. That's why I didn't get an amen. That is a problem. Yes, we are. Let this mind, this attitude, verse 5, be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, some people think, you know, I put on the mind of Christ. I've lost my mind and I put on the mind of Christ. Uh, That doesn't mean the way Jesus thinks in this passage. In Philippians chapter 2, He's talking about the attitude that Jesus Christ had when he humbled himself to come to this earth. The subject is humility, okay? That's the topic. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God. He was everything. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. I love the verse that says, Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Humility. Jesus demonstrated it, and he had a long way to come down to come to us. The next word is gentleness, willing to make allowances for other people. Probably mercy flows out of this gentleness, you know, loving people and not condemning them. The next word is patience or long suffering refrains from exacting revenge or reprisals on other people, willing to endure being done wrong. You know, the Bible said, well, I'll get to this in another at the end, but, but long-suffering, patience. You've heard me give you this definition before, but I, it really guides me. that patience is putting up with a difficult situation without putting a time limit on God to remove it. You know, Lord, I want patience and I want it now. 
God, I've had it up to here with this. You've got to you know, do something now or else. Or else what? What are you going to do to God? Seriously? It's like a little child threatening his or her parent, you know. Oh, I'm going to, what are you going to do? You're not going to do anything. Why do we, why would you ever cop an attitude toward God? I mean, seriously. Patience is not charging God foolishly, not trying to play God or run God's business. It's putting up with something that maybe you didn't create, maybe you did. But you just, you just bear with it. Amen. Verse 13, how, how can you live this out? Make allowances for each other's faults. Boy, that's, this is a good Valentine's sermon, come to think of it. I just think I'll read that again. It was so powerful the first time. May. Make allowance for each other's faults. Now, I know that doesn't apply to you because you don't have any faults. And forgive anyone who offends you. Now, am I, am I reading the Bible? So, well, that's a New Living Translation, Brother Johns. I don't have to do that. <laughs> Read it in any translation you want. It's going to tell you the same thing. Forgive anyone who offends you. The Bible said offenses will come and woe to them by whom the offenses come. But seriously, y'all, folks, there's some people that just live offended. Like they should change their name. They're like Naomi who has become what she went through. She went through the bitter loss of her husband the bitter loss of her two sons. When she came back home to Bethlehem, Judah, and they saw her, they said, is that Naomi? She said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara or bitterness, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. The hand of the Lord's been against me. I've been through bitter situations and I've become what I've been through. So then he tells them, Forgive everyone, anyone who offends you. And then he tells you this. Remember, uh-oh, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Paul may have in mind the story of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. I read it today in my devotion. You know, he's the servant who owed so much money he could never pay it back. But his Lord, his master, had mercy on him and forgave him a debt he could never repay. As soon as he was forgiven, he went out and he found another servant, a fellow servant, a peer, that owed him a hundred pence, just say a dollar, a hundred pennies. He grabbed him by the throat. He said, pay me every penny you owe me. And if you read the end of that story, the Bible said that the master came back to him and basically unforgave him because he did not pass it on. He did not pass on the forgiveness that had come to him. I'll just throw this in. It's really not the main part of my message, and it is not in my notes, but the reason a lot of people live with unforgiveness in their life from God, and they live with condemnation. I know that condemnation can be the feeling of guilt. I preached about this, conquering condemnation, sometime back. It's been a while. 
But some people, they, they will not let it go. They won't pass it on. And love only dwells in a giving heart. And forgiveness only dwells in a forgiving heart. And you may think you're, you're punishing that other person by holding them hostage to your unforgiveness. But you are not hurting them. You're hurting yourself. You are a prisoner to your own unforgiveness. Amen. All right. So, and then he says, verse 14, above all, or last of all, and this is kind of a neat word picture. Remember, we're layering up, right? We're going to put on all these virtues. Above all, the very last thing I want you to take, it could be like the old-fashioned in the Bible, it's the word girdle in the King James or a belt that tied it all together, or that final garment. He said, I want you to put something around you. And he's going to apply this to the entire the body of Christ, not just us personally. I want you to wrap yourself in love, because it is love that makes all this other stuff work. It is love that holds all these other virtues together. They don't exist independently. They are all bound up in the virtue called love. Above all, clothe yourselves with love which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Love for God and others gives us a determination to get, take off all the filthy garments of our old sinful nature. The transformation that the Holy Ghost brings in our lives, the gospel brings in us, gives us the power to really live it but we clothe ourselves. The last of all these virtues, we bind ourselves with love. Love makes mercy work. Love makes kindness work. Love makes humility possible. Love brings gentleness into our lives. Love is patience. Patient, the Bible said. And love is described as this bond, the glue that holds it all together, that belt that holds everything else in place in our lives it is the love of God that we put in action in our lives. You really can't be compassionate toward other people if you don't have love flowing in that, right? So it is love that is above every other thing. Paul writes about it in Galatians 5 and 6. Galatians 5.22, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, one attribute of the fruit of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13, we'll go there briefly in a minute. Romans 13, 9 and 10, the Bible said that all the commandments are summed up in this statement. But you love your neighbor as yourself. Love, loving one another, what we would call the golden rule is the royal law of the Bible. That we love other people as we would have them love or express their love to us. So this love is a big deal. And it's probably, you know, what, what in the world is love? What love are you talking about? So I decided to answer that question that I'm sure you have right now. From 1 Corinthians 13, and I just want to read this to you as we bind this whole thing together. And the worship team, why don't you come if you don't mind? Give us hope. By the way, on my way to 1 Corinthians, I had in my notes 1 John 4 and 8. He that loveth not, this is the King James, he that loveth not knoweth not not God. For God is love. 
If you're going to sum up the nature of God, God so loved the world that He gave. Someone said that you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. When there is love in you, it's going to flow out of you, not to you. It's going to flow out of you. I mean, it flows to you from God and other people, but understand what I mean. It just flows out of you. 1 Corinthians 13, 3. We'll start, excuse me, verse 4. We're talking about love now. What is love like? Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud. Or rude. It does not demand its own way. Wow. That hurts, doesn't it? It is not irritable, and I love this in this translation, and it keeps no record of being wronged. I had a friend one time, and somebody was doing her wrong. She wasn't retaliating at all. And only older people will understand this illustration. I said, she said, but I tell you what I'm doing. I'm saving up stamps. Anybody remember green, S&H green stamps? Look around at gray-headed people like me. Lick them, stick them, right? And you get a whole book and you go cash them in. She said, oh, I haven't done anything yet. I'm filling this book up. I'm saving up. And you wait till I get this stamp book full and I'm going to let him have it. I said, I called her name. I said, that is not in the Bible. One translation says, love keeps no score of wrongs. Amen. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whatever the truth, whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. And love like that, charity, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Sandwiched between two chapters about the gifts of the Spirit, being really powerful for God. And Paul says, I don't care how powerful you are, if you don't have love, you are nothing. If you don't use the gifts of the spirits in love, it doesn't even count. If you don't minister to other people out of a love for them, It doesn't accomplish anything. You're a sounding brass. You're a tinkling cymbal. Right? Though I give my body to be burned, it profits nothing. 1 Corinthians 13 says. So let's allow the love of God to flow into us and out of us. Pray that God would give us a determination to live. Colossians 3. To put off all those sins of the flesh all the attitudinal sins of the, of the Spirit and that come out in our words and the way we treat other people. Let us put on the nature of Jesus Christ and we can define what that looks like. We know what Christian clothing looks like. I'm not talking about real clothing. We know what a Christian's attire is like. He told us what to put on. Amen? Let's stand.
I want to pray that God would give me the determination to live this powerful passage. And on Valentine's Day, I felt directed to the Lord because we're talking about the church in February. And the thing that makes the church work more than anything else, it is the love of God in us and through us. And when we really love God, we will love other people. And when we love other people, it is the thing that binds us together more than anything else.